Well, we are returning this morning to our series in Paul's letter to uh, believers in Rome. So I'd ask you to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, and if you don't have a a Bible of your own, there's a a Bible in the pew rack in front of you uh, within reach, and uh, the, the page number for that Bible is in the order of service. There's also an outline for the sermon on the back that uh, may help you to follow along through the sermon this morning. Romans chapter 11, and we'll be going through verses uh, from 1 to 16 this morning. Uh, About a century ago, there was a a British journalist who quipped uh, a little bit of poetry, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Uh, you know, silly little thing, but there's probably also some anti-Semitism behind that uh, poetry. How odd of God to choose the, the Jews. Uh, but there is actually some biblical truth as well, maybe wasn't intended, but uh, in Deuteronomy 7, Moses says to the Israelites, you know, God didn't choose you, make a covenant with you, promise to bless you because you were more numerous than everybody else, that you were more powerful than other people. In fact, Moses says, it was because you were fewer than all peoples, you were insignificant, you were weak, that God chose to bless you. So yes, God's choosing to bless Israel is surprising to most human beings, especially those who think size and wealth and power and status is what life is all about. Anyway, again, back 100 years ago, when How Odd of God to Choose the Jews was going around, an American Jewish author decided to fire back to the goyim, which I don't know if you know the word goyim, goyim is the, 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 or a goy is a Hebrew for uh, the nations or the Gentiles. So he, he fires back, not odd of God, goyim, annoy him. So, so who can receive God's favor? Maybe that's the better question than just kind of firing back and forth about who's, who gets to be the blessed people. Who can, who can expect God's blessing? Well, we've made our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we've heard him explain how the good news of salvation in Christ is available to all people. That, that important verse right there in chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, yes, and also to the Greek, to the Gentile, which is, frankly, most of us here today. Uh, But in Paul's day, as in ours, many Jews had not believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And in chapters 9 through 11 especially, we've been working our way through these, Paul faces this question head on. Here it is. Why does God's plan to bless His chosen seem to involve their rejection? That's a tension maybe, maybe you didn't feel, you, you don't feel particularly, you're not coming in with that kind of theological conundrum on your mind, but this is, this is an issue that Paul's dealing with, and it's going to be helpful, I think, if we work through it as well and understand uh, what's going on. Why does God's plan to bless His chosen seem to involve their rejection? And uh, i got to warn you ahead of time, we're only going to get part of the answer this morning. Um, you really need the whole chapter. We'll get to the rest of the chapter, of course, next week, but Romans 11, 1 through 16 Let me read that. Please follow along. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. 
For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, Paul says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." Ooh, it's not getting any easier, is it, uh, going through Romans? This is, this is a pretty challenging passage, and we're going to uh, well, do our best this morning uh, to work our way through it. Um, and we're going to go back first, of course, to the to beginning of the, the passage. Uh, verses 1 through 5 or 6 will be this first part. Um, this is part 1, a remnant chosen by grace. And the point here is simple. Jews who believe in Jesus show that God has not rejected his people. Okay, we should ask, though, again, well, why, why did it seem? Why, why is this even a question? Why would it seem that God has rejected his people, Israel? Well, Paul has been wrestling with this issue throughout chapters 9 and 10. God had given Israelites, uh, and you, if you know the Old Testament story, you know this, he'd given them the covenants, promises, the law, uh, the, the tabernacle, temple. They were the ones, uh, Israel was the ones through whom Messiah came. They had all the elements of relationship with God. They had every expectation of blessing from God. And yet, so many of the Jews had not believed in Jesus as Messiah. Which is to say, again, if you follow Paul's thinking here, which is to say they were not saved. Look back at the end of chapter 9. You can flip back there or just listen as I read chapter 9, verses 27 to 29. Toward the end of chapter 9, maybe just a page back for you. Uh, Paul refers back to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom 
and become like Gomorrah. Paul then describes the Jewish believers in Jesus as a remnant again in 11 verse 5. His, and, and I don't know about you, my only association mentally of the word remnant is carpet. Like, that's not, not very helpful. You know, the, the leftovers after a remodeling project that maybe you can get real cheap if you go uh, to the remnant uh, part of the store. Uh, none of that really pertains to the imagery here. So if that's not that very helpful. Uh, in Isaiah, the remnant metaphor points in two directions at the same time. Under judgment of God for their sin, God's, uh, there, those who had been many, the people of Israel, people of Judah specifically in Isaiah's day, people that had been many were now only a few. And it looks like there's hardly anything left. It's just this little remnant. And that's the negative side of the picture. Loss, grief, sorrow. What's God doing? Well, I thought he was going to do this big, great thing, and, and it seems like there's just so little left. But, here's the other side, but God did not wipe out Judah as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He did not wipe them out. There was still a remnant. And so, so you need to see the, the positive side of it as well. The negative side, oh, there's so little left. But the positive side, there's something left. There's something left which gives us a glimmer of hope. They were not destroyed completely. Isaiah does the same thing with the imagery of the stump. The stump of a tree, uh, you could, if, if you think about it, this, uh, uh, just the image of a tree stump is a, is a stark and and it can be a horrifying thing. If the, this is a picture of your life, chopped down, cut off, all the, all the uh, beauty, the grandeur, the size and scope of this tree just gone, and all that's left is this dead thing that looks, for all appearances, is dead. But, but wait, the stump remains, which means there's a possibility that we just might be surprised by the life that comes back from it. It's the same thing that uh, Isaiah does with both the imagery of the stump and the imagery of the remnant. So back to Romans 11. Has God rejected his people? Paul says, no way. Uh, Paul says, I, I, not me. Paul, Paul says, I'm about as Jewish as you can get. And so if I'm a believer in Jesus, then God has not rejected his people. And for those who would be inclined to answer, well, okay, Paul, one, one Jew means, uh, proves the point that that's, that's your proof that God has not rejected his people. And Paul says, well, there's historical precedent to show that you can't always trust your eyes to see all that God is doing. So in verses two to four, Romans 11, Paul goes back to first Kings chapter 19, which is right after 1 Kings 18, which I didn't need to tell you that, but you, but you probably know that chapter a little bit better. 1 Kings 18 is the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. Do you remember this? The showdown at Mount Carmel. So Elijah, the one prophet of Yahweh, one solo prophet of the Lord versus 450 prophets of Baal, and they're, they're about to have a showdown to see who is the true God, who worships the true God. So if you don't know that story, I can't go into all that. Don't know that story. First Kings 18, you'll enjoy it. It's a good one. But First Kings 19, that's what he's quoting here. After that, after that great, powerful experience, God showing up to show that he is the true God, vindicating the, the lone prophet, one man, Elijah, standing against all the, the crowd of unbelievers, God came through for Elijah, but then Elijah has to run for his life from Queen 
Jezebel, and he falls into despair. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. They're trying to kill me. Do you, do you ever feel like, like that when you're, maybe you don't have somebody trying to kill you, but you feel like you're all alone. You're the last man standing or last woman standing. I, I'm the only one trying to, to be honest around here. I'm the only one that's trying to do a good job. I'm the only one that's, that's, that's trying to live uh, to honor God in my workplace or, or in my family or in my neighborhood. I feel like I'm the only one that's trying to do the right thing. Uh, and, and it's hard. It's hard when, you, when it feels like you've you got this voice in you that's saying, hey, God, I'm the only one that's, that's even trying to honor you here, and you're, you're leaving me hanging. Or you, you look at our, our country, its leadership, and those who seem to have the most influence in our culture, and then you compare them to the churches that seem to be getting smaller, or Christians that seem to be caving in to popular opinion. And it's easy to think, huh, look, look at all that's been destroyed. Look, look how small, how few we seem against such powerful forces. I alone am left. And, what's, and God, what are you doing about it? Is he not carrying out his plan, his purpose? It, it, and if, it's, if he's not, I mean, is he even there? If the promise doesn't, the plan doesn't seem to be working out. But as in 1 Kings, as in Elijah's day, God has already been doing more than you can see. That, that's important to, to note. Elijah is like, I'm the only guy. And, and the Lord says, no, 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 you don't understand. I've got stuff I've already been working on. I've got people I've already kept for myself. I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the, the knee to Baal. Maybe that's true even not just in Paul's day with a, a, a greater remnant than what most people appreciated. Maybe that's true for us as well. Maybe uh, when we are seeing things shrink, when we think, see things shake and move, and the, we, we focus on evil Queen Jezebel, and I don't have anybody in mind for that. You can do whatever you want to do with that. But you, you're focusing on that. Um, maybe God's doing more than you can see. Maybe, maybe it's somewhere else in the world. Maybe it's right next door or right under your nose. Paul, of course, is not speaking specifically to your fears about America. This is about Israel God has not promised to bless America. We should know he did promise to bless Israel, and that was what created the tension. Verse 5, though, he says, I'm back in chapter 11, so too, like Elijah's day, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And you can see that paradox of the remnant in the book of Acts. Most Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, but there were, there were some. In fact, there were thousands who believed, thousands who came to faith in Jesus as the Christ, as their Messiah. And it would be tempting to look at all those who had rejected him and then question the plan and promises of God. I thought you were going to bless Israel. But the presence of the remnant, though small, showed that God was still at work. And it even, even is in the very picture of the remnant, just like the picture of the stump, says that maybe there's more to come that you just don't see yet. So, it's, it's, it's important for us not to, uh, to sit back and say, God, just a remnant? You're just going to do a little thing right now? Like, hey, I'm not, I'm not done yet. Um, how come you're, God, how come you're not doing more? This seems so small. Remember, they are chosen by grace. The question is always, is not, God, why don't you save everyone? The question really is, why does God save anyone? 
If, if, we're, if we're honest about the situation of sin and judgment and, and grace, it's not, God, why don't, come on, God, why don't you save everyone? It's, hey, step back. Why does God save anyone? He's under no obligation to save anyone. It was true of Israel. It's true of humankind as a whole. God would be perfectly just to wipe us out, like Sodom and Gomorrah, completely because of our sin. But to save some, to save any, is an act of grace. But I, I bet that still leaves you like, oh, but I, don't, I still don't know if I like that, <laughs> right? Still, still leaves you a little unsettled. Don't, don't we, don't, isn't the picture of the, the generous, uh, extensive grace, the, the mercy of God, doesn't that uh, leave us thinking that he's going to do more? He, he's not up there saying, hey, hey, just be thankful I saved any of you people. He's not, that's not what he's saying. But is that, because, that, you know, that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem uh, right of God. It doesn't seem all that gracious, all that generous. Well, we'll see as we go through the text. Actually, it's going to sound worse before it gets better. Do you remember what the middle part of the text was? Let's read this again. Verse 6, and I'll read through verse 10. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Uh, so that's a, a, a insensitivity. They were sort of dull. They had, uh, they're not clear. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, quoting a psalm, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is part two. The rest were hardened. We had a remnant chosen by grace. The rest were hardened. Those who see salvation as their doing will find that it is God's doing. Now, if at least some of the Jews had believed in Jesus, that was a sign that there was a remnant chosen by grace consistent with the pattern in Elijah's day and Isaiah's day, and that gives Paul the opportunity to remind his readers of another dimension of grace. What what do I mean by that? Well, the basic idea behind grace is simple. It's a gift. That's That's the concept of grace as gift. But you can think about gift, though, in a couple of ways. That's what I mean by two dimensions. Uh, in terms of the giver and the receiver. To be a gift, this is just the nature of gift, the nature of grace, to be a gift, the giver must act freely without obligation or else it's not a gift. It's not grace. The other side of that, the other side of the same coin, the receiver, the recipient of a gift, cannot claim to deserve it or try to work to earn it or else, again, not a gift, not grace. Now, who, who doesn't like to get a gift, right? Who, who doesn't like free stuff? Who doesn't, who doesn't just get the little lift when they get that notification on your phone that says, Casey's will give all the Casey Rewards members a free cookie today. I got to get right over there. Free free gift. They just want to give it to me. What, what grace and mercy. Uh, so we're excited about it. We, excited, we're, we, we think everybody likes free stuff, right? Who doesn't like to get a gift? But when it comes to salvation, a lot of people don't seem to like free, don't seem to like grace. 
How do, how do you know that? Like, really? Are you just, well, some people, it seems, want to say, you know, God, I really worked hard to be good. I, I, was, I was always one of the good kids. I never, never really rebelled when I was a teenager. I did everything the right way. I'm not, I'm not like those ungodly people. Uh, I, I was careful to follow all the rules. I did all the thou shalt nots. I did not do them. And of course, God, you're going to have to judge those other folks. And, and naturally, you'll go easy on me because, you know, I've been so well behaved. What you're saying there is, is that you you don't like grace. You don't like free. You, li- you like the idea that you have done something to get you where you are. You, 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 you like the idea of being able to say, you know, I have done better than those other folks. I've done, I, I am, I'm really more deserving than and other people. And so I'm sure, God, that is the basis on which I will be accepted and they will be rejected. You don't like grace. But if you try to make salvation work that way, it's right here what Paul says, grace would no longer be grace. And Paul says, that's why, verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. That phrase just by itself might seem like, what's he even talking about? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Well, once more, go back with me a page or so to the end of chapter 9. He's, he's just, th- this is all one big long thing. We've had to chop it up for sermons, but he's, this is all the same of a piece. So the end of uh, chapter 30, where we left off actually before, uh, chapter 9, verse 30, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, and, that, and where that chapter ends, the, those who have, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do this by grace, I'm going to take this, I'm not going to take God's salvation, this righteous standing as a free gift. I'm going, to, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to show that I deserve this. I've earned it. God's going to recognize me for what I've accomplished. Those, where that chapter ends, chapter 11 goes next. Israel, who tried to achieve their righteous standing before God on the basis of their accomplishments, on the basis of their efforts, will stumble and they will be hardened in their rebellion. Now, that's more of the same stuff that we saw in chapter 9 that makes us uncomfortable. God hardening someone. The fact that verses 8 to 10 here in this chapter are quotations from the Old Testament show this is not Paul's idea. He's not making up this theology. This is how God had operated before. But what's especially disturbing, especially if you're a, a Jewish audience, is the fact that that second quotation, verses 9 and 10, which comes from Psalm 69, 22 and 23, which is why it's saying, as David says, a Psalm of David, it was originally written by David against the enemies of the king. The enemies of David the king. And Paul's applying this to unbelieving Israelites. What the, the, the application, the interpretation that Paul is making is saying, okay, look at the Psalm. Oppose the king and you will be under God's curse. Oppose King Jesus, 
and you will be under the curse, even if you are an Israelite. Whoa. It's a troubling thought that God would harden someone in their unbelief, or more specifically, in their refusal to accept His grace. You know, blinded by our own sin, yeah, we can, it seems easier to stomach, but God hardening them, God actually dulling their senses, their spiritual sensitivity. And then Paul surprises us even further, telling us that God has a good purpose behind it. Whoa, anybody feeling whiplash? <laughs> like God's hardening them, but he's, no, it's okay, he's doing something, he's doing something bigger. This was not Israel's final judgment but a temporary condition toward an even greater salvation. Verse 11, So I ask, did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? Was that the purpose? By no means. No way, man. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. This is part three, the reconciliation of the world. We had the remnant chosen by grace, the rest were hardened, but here, the reconciliation of the world, giving lavish grace to Gentiles is how God woos Jews back to himself. So, verse 11 lets us breathe a little easier. We're all, you know, uncomfortable with God's, God's hardening them. He's, he's, it feels like he's almost preventing them from, from seeing, understanding, receiving grace. Well, God's purpose in hardening unbelieving Israel, making them stumble, was not ultimately to see them fall forever. He would not be content with me, a mere remnant to be saved. He wants to bring salvation to the world. Now, if you read the whole Old Testament, all, all the scriptures, Gentile salvation, salvation coming to all peoples, not just, just his special people, Israel. Gentile salvation was not God's plan B. Uh, well, I guess if Israel doesn't want it, see if somebody else does. Not, not what he's doing. Even in the very first promises made to Abraham, in you, I will bless you, and in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. There's always God's plan that through Israel. Not simply, I'm going to just give good stuff and favor and nice things to you, Israel. No, I'm going to bless you in order to be a blessing, to expand my blessing to the world. That was always the end game. So, um, what's, so then you're like, well, what's all this convoluted back and forth going from Israel to the Gentiles to get back to Israel again? And in both verses 11 and 14, Paul talks about making Israel jealous. And he's playing off a quotation from Deuteronomy he used before, uh, back at the very end of chapter 10. Maybe you can see it there. Uh, chapter 10, verse 19. He says, But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So here's that, that idea of jealousy that he's working with here. And that verse that he's quoting from Moses 
chapter 10, verse 19, is going back to a time where Moses was with uh, the people of Israel. They had gone through the wilderness. They are on the threshold of the promised land. So this is the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses is about to leave the scene. Joshua is going to lead them across the Jordan into the promised land. All the blessings, the inheritance, the, the, the promises fulfilled. And yet, kind of a downer, uh, but, but Moses tells the people, you know, uh, you're not going to be faithful to him. He's, he's promised you all this. He's, given, he's brought you this far, and you're not going to be faithful to him. Now, the bigger picture, the whole story was that he says, but God will come back to you. He will change your hearts. He will bring you to himself. That, that's the whole thing. But in, in this verse that he's quoting, this is actually Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. I'll read you that whole verse. Paul just quotes half of it. Deuteronomy 32, 21 says, they have made me jealous. This is God speaking. They, ha- they Israel, have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, a nation that was ignorant of God, people that were ignorant of God's law. Now, I always have to explain whenever we talk about God being jealous, which the Bible refers to more than one occasion, it's, it is far different than some, you know, soap opera or some school-age romance where we think of the idea of, of jealousy. Like when I was in seventh grade and I, you know, really liked this girl, but she thought that this boy from eighth grade was the thing and, like, he was so much more mature or something. I don't know. I've, I've moved on. Um, it's, it's okay. But, you know, you've got that kind of thing going on that, like, that's, that God's jealous, that God's petty, God is, you know, that he's emotionally up and down. No. God, when it says God is jealous, God had been in a covenant, he had made a covenant relationship with Israel like a marriage. Promise, commitment, focus, you and no other, right? That kind of focused relationship, bound together with all the responsibilities and blessings of relationship. But as that verse in Deuteronomy described it, Israel had been unfaithful. God said that they had made him jealous. They had provoked him to anger with idols. They had provoked him to anger with what was no God at all. Come on, I, I'm your God. I'm your, I'm your husband, and you provoke me by going after no God. Their unfaithfulness to him made him jealous, and now he says, I will make you jealous. I will provoke you to anger with what is no nation, Gentiles who were not his covenant people. Now, this does not sound like the kind of marriage counseling that I would give to anybody, right? You th- you, hey, so you're sitting in my office, so you think your wife is messing around with another guy? Well, why not show some love to, you know, another woman and make her jealous? That'll win her back. That doesn't, I would not ever say that. Now, while God is using the analogy of marriage and unfaithfulness, God is not unfaithful to Israel by expanding his love to Gentiles, So even though, yes, they had been in a committed, faithful relationship, in some sense it was exclusive, they could not worship other gods, but God is allowed to love more humans, right? God is allowed to love more people. Um, It doesn't mean that God couldn't or wouldn't do good to the Gentiles, but listen, Israel had, and so often in their history, had mistaken or had misapplied their understanding of that relationship with God. Well, 
we're the chosen ones, that means he doesn't like, he won't favor, he, he's not going to do any good to anybody else. We're the chosen ones. And then they begin to take it for granted, which is the opposite of grace, a, a sort of entitlement, a sense of like, here, here uh, God's not kind and merciful to us. He owes it to us and to us and, no, and to nobody else. If anyone took the relationship the wrong way, it was the fact that Israel understood the exclusivity of, exclusivity of their relationship to mean it was them and nobody else. They took the special place of God for granted. They looked down on the Gentiles as if they, the Jews, were better. But that's not grace. In these paragraphs, then, uh, in, in Romans 11, verse 11, not only see that this was God's plan not to harden Israel so as to reject her, to leave her for someone else, but to make her jealous in order to woo her back, we also see that this shapes Paul's ministry, verses 13 and 14. He magnifies his ministry, which is to say he makes a big deal about the gospel going out to the Gentiles, not to rub it in the face of the, his fellow Jews, but to get them to see just how good a relationship with God is, just how good grace is. So remember the Deuteronomy parallel. Israel made God jealous by going after no God, idolatry, so he will make them jealous by going after no people, the Gentiles. But what has Israel done in Paul's day? What was their unfaithfulness? How had they been unfaithful? What does he say in this chapter? They had left the good news of God's grace to go after a righteousness based on works, a salvation not by grace. And folks, that's no salvation. That's impossible. How would God woo them back? By showing his grace to a people who didn't deserve it, who didn't earn it, people like you and me. Now, this is is in some ways a little hard to draw a practical application from, uh, as in, Okay, so if I'm here today and I'm a believer who's a Gentile, how will my reception of the gospel of grace make any Jews jealous? I mean, I'm not sure if I know any Jews. Um, Well, maybe ask this. Would your experience of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ draw anyone else to Jesus? Would it make somebody else jealous, like interested, intrigued, attracted, to God, to Christ, because of your relationship, your experience of grace. Hopefully, if you've been at this church at any length of time, or, or even just this year as we've been going through Romans, you know and understand and believe that your righteous standing before God, your ability to pass final judgment and enter into eternal glory is a gift of God's grace through Christ's finished work on the cross. It's to be received through faith not by, on the basis of works. You can't demand it because you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You're not entitled to it. You, you and I stand in grace. We stand in grace, and it's a beautiful thing. It is the utter mercy of God. It's the absolute gift, His kindness, that leads us to repentance. And now, your and my obedience, our discipleship, our service, our, our giving, are going to the ends of the earth, all of that is in grateful response to the love that he has shown us, not to earn his favor, not to work our way into heaven, not to climb some sort of ladder, but to live into that relationship, to live out of the relationship of love that we have with God. It's, it's grace. Now, that, that may all be perfectly clear 
in this room, as we gather together as a church, as we rehearse these things that we believe, but if the only hint of your Christian faith that other people pick up, people who do not now know Jesus, people who think, well, that they're okay if they're, as long as they're pretty good, as long as they're better than other people. They're out there living that kind of uh, assumed righteousness on the basis of works. Hey, I'm a pretty decent person. I, I'm, I'm trying to do uh, you know, the best I can, and hopefully at the end, it all kind of washes out. That's, that's where most people are at. Now, if the only hint that other people who don't really know Jesus, they look at you, they know, okay, they have an idea that you're a Christian, but the only thing they pick up is that your faith, your relationship with God is nothing but a, a, a moralism uh, well, try to be good this week. Try to, don't, don't try to look at, at things that you shouldn't look at or listen to things you shouldn't look at or try to hang around with the right, right people. It's just a moralism that is impersonal and joyless. And the only thing that they know about you as an, as an evangelical, quote-unquote, is that you're upset about certain social and political issues. And if there are a lot to be, there's a lot to be upset about. I, I'm right there with you. But if that's all they know about you, if they, don't, if they don't know that we only know God's favor because of his mercy, if they can't tell that we, you and I are still amazed by grace, that we come to worship on Sunday, not out of a sense of duty or tradition, but because this is the foundational reality of our lives. Apart from the grace of God, we would be doomed. We would be damned. How would we make anybody else jealous? How would we make anybody else like, I want what they got. Can I get in on that relationship? How would anyone look at our relationship with God and think, I want in on that? What I'm afraid of is that we understand the doctrine, the definition of grace, but we don't experience it. We don't savor it. We don't rejoice in it and live with the joy and freedom that it is meant to give us. May God use us not simply to relay the facts about Jesus, but to show the world how good God is, how wonderful grace is. To return to the issue of Romans 11, Paul says that by preaching the gospel of grace to the Gentiles, he hopes to make his fellow Jews jealous and, verse 14, thus save some. Save some. That, that, and that remnant is going to get bigger little by little, in Paul's lifetime, through his ministry, but there's still more to come, even beyond that, that we'll see in the rest of the chapter. This is as far as we're going this week. We'll complete the chapter next week where Paul goes further to say God's not done with Israel. He's not satisfied with a remnant. He won't be satisfied with something small, and that's how both of these paragraphs end. Verse 12 here. Now, if the tres if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Down to 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Is that possible? Yes, he says it is. More and more Jews brought in, more and more of the world brought in, Jews and Gentiles, more and more people saved by grace. So for all the way... For all the ways that this first part of chapter 11 may leave you scratching your head, like, what is God doing? Why would he do that? Why, why that way? Why did it have to be this complicated, this dramatic? What? Where this is going? 
Where this is going is the widening scope of God's mercy, God's grace extending to more people, God keeping, yes, keeping his promises to his his beloved people and his expanding family. The bottom line, God has not rejected his chosen people. He's showing grace to all peoples. We'll see that very explicitly later in the chapter. But to close this morning, remember, remember that line, how odd of God to choose the Jews uh, there's been a more recent pastor and author, Andrew Wilson. He, he tried his, to put his pen to, the, to a response, and he said this, Not odd of God to choose the Jews, if through one Jew the rest get blessed. That's where we stand today, because of Jesus. He is the one Jew that, that, makes, that brings God's blessing, the Messiah, our Savior, Savior not just of His people, but Savior of the world. That includes you and me, and God's not done showing His grace, and He wants to show that grace in Jesus through you and me to others who don't yet know Him. Let's pray. Oh God, help us you know our instincts. You know how easy it is for us to settle into a, a dutiful relationship with you, uh, a self-congratulatory re- sense of like, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, so uh, God should be happy and, and others should uh, take notice. But God, we're, we're wanting you to keep working on us, keep, keep, dare we say, humbling us to, to simply enjoy the gift to receive, to come as, as paupers, as beggars, to receive grace from your hand. Oh God, and I pray that we would come and then, not to come to only come to receive your grace, but, but go and, and like, like so many stories we see in the Gospels of those who have been healed, those who've been saved, those who've been, have received the touch of Jesus in their life, go forward walking, jumping, shouting. God, do that work of grace in us, a fresh work of grace, not just for the forgiveness of our sins, but to make us people who know you and love you and enjoy you, all that you've done for us. And God, would you draw still more? Would you draw still more? I, God, we confess, I confess, it's, sometimes it's just easy to get to the place where, well, I guess, I guess they're just those people that are not going not gonna to turn. They're not going to trust Jesus. They're, they're not interested. But God, the same way you can harden people is, is the same way you can soften people. Same way you can draw people to yourself through a people that have been transformed by grace. God, make us that people transformed by grace that makes other people say, I want that. I want the God. I want to know the God that they know. Lord, you're worth it. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.